0: Most of you know Nola Mills. She's not here today because she's with the Lord. She, um, her funeral will be on February 4th, Monday, a week from tomorrow, here at the church at 11 a.m. And the funeral visitation will be at Hal Peterson Funeral Home the day before, uh, uh, on February 3rd at 4 to 8 p.m. You talk with. Nola, one of the things that she always did when you tried to pray for her, even when she couldn't speak because she had tubes down her throat, she would strenuously object and ask you to pray for everybody else. And uh, so we're grateful to know that she's not in difficulty anymore, not suffering and not in pain anymore, but she's with the Lord. Well, you answer this question for me. You don't have to speak out loud if you don't want to. You can answer it in your mind. What's the number one complaint that unbelieving people have against the church? What's the number one complaint that non-churchgoer types have against the church? They say something like this, don't they? Is it this way where you work? The church is full of, of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. Now, of course, the first thing that you think, the first thing that I think when someone says, well, the church is full of hypocrites, you know, come, I've worked on this for a while, so I have these little cute replies, little quips, you know, you can always say, well, it won't hurt to have one more, you should join us, you know, you know, you, you can, but that doesn't really help. That, that, I, I don't think anybody's ever come to church because I, I gave them that little line I borrowed from somebody else, right? Or if a hypocrite is between you and the Lord, he's closer than you are. You've heard that one. But again, it doesn't really, that's not really very compelling uh, to people. Jesus had another plan. And of course, if your life is full of guilt and shame and sin, then you always want to try to find somebody else whose life is inconsistent because misery loves company. You're just especially... Eager to find fault with others. And we know that. So, people that are outside of the faith or outside of the church, and maybe they feel guilty and, and feel full of shame, they, they're, they're quick to find fault. And perhaps they assign us insincerity when it's not appropriate. And I think we all recognize that. But I also think it, that we should be really careful this morning that we don't dismiss this too quickly. And we're not too quick to defend ourselves against the charge of religious. Insincerity or religious hypocrisy, and I'll tell you why. Because the the unbelieving world isn't they're not the only ones who think this is a big problem. Guess who else thinks it's a big problem? Jesus thinks it's a big problem. Shortly before he died, as Pastor Pine was teaching you last week, this is a time of great intensity. This is a significant time. Because these are some of the final words of Jesus before the week, before the day of his trial and and his crucifixion. And so what Jesus says, and what he says a great deal, is weighted with a special significance. And he takes an entire, what Matthew is given in what we call an entire chapter of the Bible, an entire discourse against religious hypocrisy, against insincere religion. So it's important. This, Matthew 23, is Jesus... On religious hypocrisy. It's it's clearly three sections. The first section is verses one through twelve. Jesus is talking in verses one through twelve about the Pharisees. They're there, but he's talking about them. He's talking to the crowd, he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees. And then in chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. He stops talking about the scribes and Pharisees, and he starts talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And this section is classically known as the seven woes. And Jesus pours out, in very straightforward language, woes, judgments against the religious hypocrites, and they were, these guys were the leading religious authorities of the day. I think Pastor Pine said last week, the brain trust, and that was a good way of putting it. And then, verses 37 through 39, he talks to Israel, personified in a very tender way. Jesus talks to Israel, personified as Jerusalem. And this is, he ends as, as harsh and as direct as he is in proclaiming the error of religious hypocrisy. He's tender in the final verses. Today, what I'd like to do is I like to read those a lengthy passage, I like to read it all together, because that way we get the sense of the whole passage. And so, out of uh, honor to the Lord, let's just quietly and slowly, we'll remain seated today, but let's just quietly and slowly just think this passage through as we read it carefully from chapter 1, uh, 23, verse 1, uh, to the end of the chapter. We're in Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places in the at feasts, the best place seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men Rabbi, rabbi, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father for their, for one is your Father, he who is in heaven, and do not be called teachers. For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus is going to change from talking about the scribes and Pharisees to speaking to the scribes and Pharisees in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel, land, and sea, to win one proselyte. And when he is won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it is obliged to perform it fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? "...therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it, and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it, and by, all, and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier manners of the law, justice and mercy and faith." These you ought to have done, but without without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse out the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because... You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you kill and crucify and some you will scourge. In your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that you help us be faithful to what your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, said in these words, and give us a special gift today that we would not think of others but ourselves, that we would examine our own hearts for any blind spot of religious insincerity. We would freely and openly confess that that is true of all of us. All of us lack your righteousness. All of us have blind spots of insincerity. But... I pray that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, in a way that we can handle it, you would show that to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are a number of ways to approach this text. I thought of four of them. We can use it to identify and reject false teachers, to keep from being influenced by people that shouldn't be our leaders. We can use it, secondly, to instruct uh, sincere leaders. If you want to be a, a true Christian and you want to be a, a true leader, and there's a bit of leadership in all of us, this text could be used, it could be kind of turned inside out and used as positive instruction. And it's intended that. You see that there from verses, seven, or verses 8 through 12. A third, reason, th- a third way it can be used is, it can be used like a lot of places in the Bible, and the whole Bible is this way, as a mirror, as a tool for self-examination look at yourself and do any of the words that Jesus said are any of the words that Jesus said true about you and about me and then finally and this is the most beautiful use I think this can be used as a display of the beauty and the character of our true shepherd the Lord Jesus who was the perfect personification of every virtue and every quality of character and every aspect of righteousness, and his beauty should stir our hearts. Even when we look at this, this was the only man who ever walked the earth who could speak like he spoke and call out religious hypocrisy the way he did because he had no insincerity in him, not at all. He was and is the perfect son of God. That's going to be important. This morning we want to deal with the first twelve verses of this Jesus talking about the Pharisees. Today we're going to take this first section, and for these purposes, there are two sections within that. In verses one through seven, you'll see that Jesus is saying, This is the way it is, and it shouldn't be this way. And then in verses eight through twelve, he's saying, and this is the way it should be among you. You'll notice that he says that. The verses one through seven, This is the way it is, and it shouldn't be. And then verses 8 through 12, and this is the way I want it to be among you. This is very significant, because Jesus is a changing of the guard. He's announcing the changing of the guard. The religious leadership, the official religious leadership is going to change. And he wants changes of people, and he wants changes of behavior in that. Now there were, and by the way, by by way of application, we're going to ask Jesus was righteous without a hint of religious hypocrisy. Jesus was perfectly righteous with no insincerity. Are you? Am I? There were probably 6,000 Pharisees. These were separatists. Separatist is, is a good thing. But not all, not all the separatists were bad. Not all the Pharisees were bad. Some of them were good. There are a number of stories of good Pharisees, faithful Pharisees in the Bible. There were those um, Some, again, named in Scripture who really sought the Lord with sincerity. In this text, Jesus isn't creating dialogue with them. You notice that? He's not having like a panel discussion or a give and take. He's not kind of quietly listening to their take on things. This is not a dialogue. This is a clear and resounding declaration. Jesus goes directly after the false teachers. He's establishing his apostles as the true teachers. And he's making a protracted and public statement that the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes is to be rejected. And he speaks in very straight talk. Verse 13, he calls them hypocrites. Verse 14, again, hypocrites. Verse 15, again, hypocrites. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 29, hypocrites. And he throws in a few nests of snakes and other things like that. So he's quite manly in this. Uh, these are people who can and will kill him. And he knows it. He stands up and he speaks truth to them. And this truth has been recorded for us, passed down by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to the church. This is the Jesus you should know. Jesus who is a man and God. We're to avoid the influence of leaders who are insincere. We're to avoid, this is the heart of the text here, we're to avoid the influence of leaders who are insincere. And they think wrong about things. For instance, they think wrong about righteousness. You see this in verses 2 and 3. And I'll just swiftly go over this section twice, and then the third time we'll go slowly through it. But notice what it says as we, as we read verse two, 2 and 3 again. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seats. The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe that observe and do, but do not according to their works, for they say and they do not do. They don't think right about righteousness. They look at it as an external or outward thing rather than an inward thing. They don't think or do right about ministry. They look at ministry as burdening people with responsibilities rather than lightening their burdens. Remember Jesus in Matthew 11:28, He comes to make the load lighter, not heavier. They don't think right about ministry. They don't think right about righteousness. They don't think right about greatness. Reading from now verse 4 all the way, verses 4 and 5. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. And then he goes after this into a long discourse of the different kinds of things they do because they're conscious of how people see them more than they're conscious of what God knows about them. They have a wrong idea of greatness. Their idea of greatness is men are going to declare me great because I have titles and because I have honors and because I have the accoutrements of religious leadership. They're going to see that I'm a leader. And their noses in the air, not recognizing it's God in the end who's going to decide who's who and what's what and who's really great. And so as a quick fly over this little section, we avoid the influence of leaders who think wrong about righteousness. They see it as outward rather than inward. They think wrong about ministry. They burden, instead of lightening, the burdens of people. They think wrong about greatness. They want to be served instead of a desire to serve others. And we want to avoid their influence as we pass over this section again because they're lacking in sincerity. Again, verses 2 and 3, they're lacking in sincerity. They're not for real. They're lacking in sympathy. They're putting burdens on people. Religious leaders are supposed to help people lighten their burdens. They're not supposed to burden people. It's kind of important to think about that. And they're lacking in humility in obvious ways. Now when we went to Israel, we visited a a number of different synagogues. And this was an interesting place. This was the case in a a few synagogues that we visited. They had actually unearthed the seat. It was a part of a synagogue, the seat of Moses. It was a place of official teaching. A person that sits in the seat of Moses is supposed to repeat the things that Moses said. He's supposed to teach the law of God. They have perched themselves, Jesus says, you placed yourself in Moses' seat. You put yourself in a place of authority. Because you're in a place of authority, you have a place of responsibility. Uh, A lot of people were taking their pictures in the seat, but I had read this passage, so I thought, I'm going to stand beside the seat. That's not because I'm not proud. It's because I read this passage ahead of time, and I didn't want to look bad. I want to look good to people. So, as you can see, it gets... There's a problem top to bottom here, right? Let's take a look here at the way not to do things. This is not the way, Jesus says. Verses 1 and 2, they abuse their authority. They have the seat of Moses. They have a place of religious leadership. And if we have place of a place of religious leadership, we need to be very, very careful to recognize that if you have a place of authority, a place of religious leadership, even if you're just listening to verses in Awana, this is serious Thing not to control or manipulate or burden or oppress people. Jesus is not pleased with religious leaders who use their authority or their power to control and to manipulate and to burden and to oppress people. Those people are going to answer to Jesus for that. This place of authority is a place just simply to repeat the truth of God that sets people free. They abuse their place of authority. And they don't know, they don't do the things that they say in verses 1 and 2. Uh, verses, um, sorry, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, they they say, but they do not. Whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do. In other words, when they read the Bible, the Bible is true. But you will recognize there's no congruity between what they're reading and what they're doing. So do what they read, but don't do what they do. And how many of you know, like, that's the, that's turning It's religious teaching on its head. If you're a teacher, pastor, parent, teacher of any kind, you know very well that after a while you recognize that if you say one thing and do another, it's what you do that they will do, not what you say. And what you want to do is you want to say and do the same thing because that's a very powerful combination because people are wired to imitate others. That's why we need to be careful about our proximity to people who are religiously insincere because if we're not careful, we'll be influenced by them. We'll admire them or we'll be influenced negatively by them. We do. Jesus is warning here in a long discourse don't be influenced by the wrong people. And, and there's a subtle, just two kinds of influence. We'll talk about it later. But understand that they've abused their places of authority and they don't do what they say. And then they burden people with extra laws that they don't keep themselves. They won't even move them with one of their fingers. And then they do what they do to impress people. They do what they do because their consciousness is what people think about them. This would probably be a great place for us to stop. And again, not to think about other people, but only to think about ourselves. Is our main consciousness, what does God think about me? Or is our main consciousness what do people think about me? Have you ever heard of shame cultures, shame-based cultures? We like to think we're not like that. And, um, but there are cultures of people, great groups of people that are powerfully driven by just what other people say and think about them. I'm, and we're not like that, but there are cultures like that. We don't really care about what people say and think about us, right? All we think about is what does God say and think about me? Of course, I'm being facetious. This is really a this is one that if you read this and you're honest and you're not thinking about other people and you're thinking about yourself, you flee to the cross because only Jesus is so perfect that he would not think about himself over others. And and though he did, as the scriptures say, I had an old pastor friend. He's he's still living. His name is Levi Wisner, and he fought in World War II. He was in a battle of the Bulge. In World War II, and so these are people that you don 't get a chance to talk to very much anymore because they 're passing away very quickly. So if you have an opportunity to talk with somebody who's a World War II veteran, it would be a very good idea for get down there for you to get their oral history down. I was talking with Levi Wister. he 's preaching actually in our little church in the country one day, and he said, "You know what I noticed he 's a very humble man he's a very godly man. He said, "You know if I noticed? there are two kinds of soldiers." There's the parade soldier, and I've always remembered this. There's the parade soldier, and there's the battle soldier. The battle soldier, he said, the parade soldier just wants to be seen, but the battle soldier does not want to be seen. And then he said, which are you? Are you a parade soldier that wants to be seen, or are you a battle soldier that wants to not be seen? And I will tell you that after that message, Levi and I knelt at the first pew and prayed for a while, over that. I often think of that. It's our job to make Christ known, Christ seen, Christ lovely. When Pastor Michael was singing and he knelt down, I thought to myself, they're not going to be able to see him there. Which is exactly what he was saying in his song. So I thought that was kind of humorous. This is what the Lord wants us, and maybe that will be a symbol that we can remember. As hard of a struggle as it is for some of us to take To put Jesus forward so that he will be seen. You know, people will get tired in me. And people will get tired of you. People will get weary of us. They'll see our flaws and our failures. They will never tire of the beauty of Jesus. So we want to make him seen. These men, they didn't want to impress God. They wanted to impress people. And then they dressed up to show off. Understand that most people, for instance, in worship, if you dress up, you don't dress up to show off. I don't think we have much of that. I don't know that we have that here. I think that folks, when they dress up a little bit, they dress up as like my audience with the king. I'm going to go worship the Lord, and I want to show reverence. I want to show, uh, show, uh, a, show a sense of reverence to the Lord. And so and then maybe your mama taught you that. You know, mine did. She said it's your Sunday best. You wear your Sunday best. And, of course, that's one way to look at that. Another way to look at that, too, the New Testament, it's interesting, you don't really find that teaching in the New Testament anywhere. What you find in the New Testament is clear and repeated warnings against ostentatious dress, right? When it talks about a woman's apparel, it's often called modest, and then it's followed immediately by not with gold and jewels and braided hair and all this and other those. The idea is don't show off your finery at church, Don't come together with God's people just to show that you make more money than somebody else. Don't put people off by your fine clothes. And James, what does James say? He says, you know, one comes in and he has a ring and he's obviously wealthy and you give him a seat here. But the one comes in in mean clothing, comes in in common clothes and you say, well, we don't care where you sit. James is saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be in the church. In other words, there's not supposed to be a hierarchy in the church. These are the titled people and the not titled people. It's all brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus says. There's not supposed to be, you know, out in the world there's this, like, this keen sense of, you know, you empty my trash, you know, that kind of thing. A keen sense of, I want a corner office. A keen sense of, my car's worth $10,000 more than your car. There's a keen sense of that kind of thing in the world, am I right? In this place where God's people gather together, Jesus is saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so, to, to some people, you may, you may dress in a fine way because your heart is special reverence to God. And you want to show special reverence to God. And I will tell you that if that's in your heart, God sees your heart he appreciates your reverence for him that you're showing. But it may also be that you wear common clothing so that you don't put off other common people who need to find their way to Calvary. And if that's what's in your heart, then I can just tell you, God is pleased with you. God is happy with you. This is consistent with the teaching of Jesus, that we would all have common ground around the cross. Matter of fact, what's happening is God is looking on your heart He's not looking on the outward appearance. Men are looking on the outward appearance. But God is looking on your heart. So that's something to think about there, isn't it? In other words, church isn't a peacock show. A pastor's meeting isn't a peacock show. My dad used to come home from the pastor's meeting. He was bivocational, which meant my dad wasn't a big shot. He was bivocational, which meant he had to take a day off work to go to the pastor's meeting. He lost, he lost money as a result of that. And many times my dad came home and from time to time, it would leak out. You could just tell that it was a little discouraging for him. And he wouldn't say it very often, but every once in a while he would say, Ken, it's just a peacock show. That's all it is. Pastors, Christian leaders, kind of saying, my church is bigger than yours, our offering is bigger than yours, I'm a bigger deal than you are. This is totally inconsistent with humble followers of Jesus' way. It should not be that way. Here's the scary part. This passage is saying, Jesus is watching over that, and he's going to take people out of leadership and bring judgment to them if they abuse their authority like that. He's going to exalt those who humble themselves. He's going to humble those who exalt themselves. And you'll probably live long enough to see that in your lifetime. I have. And it's very sobering. It's very thought-provoking. They dressed up to show off. They also love places of honor. Let's read verses 5 and 6. All their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They show off their clothing. And they love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. They scramble around to get the place there. And they love the greeting. Verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces. They love titles of honor. They insist on titles of honor. Greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, which means teacher. It's interesting, is it? This is not the way. Jesus is saying, this is not the way it ought to be. So let's take a look at that list there. They, ablo- they abuse their place of authority. They don't do the things that they expect other people to do. They burden people with extra laws that they don't keep themselves. They want to impress people more than they want to impress God. They dress up to show off. They love the best places of honor, and they love titles of honor. Jesus says, this is not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way it should be. And that's what he says in verses 8 through 12. He says, this is the way. Don't insist on titles. Now, this is one that's interesting to me. Since I was a kid, I've always read this and thought, hmm, I'm not sure that we're very careful about this. But let's take a look. This is verse 8, you do not be called rabbi. That means don't be called teacher. Uh, One is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Now, this is the one we always get the Roman Catholics on, right? Verse 9, the Roman Catholics call the priest father, and we say, that's wrong, because the Bible says you're not supposed to call anybody father. Okay, I agree with that, but what about the other verse that says, don't call anybody rabbi or teacher? I was wondering about, well, why do we only like really park on that one verse and pick on the Catholic folks, and why don't we ever, why do we do that? Why do we say, this is so-and-so, his title is such and such. The Scriptures do not teach that a person should insist on titles of honor. Isn't that interesting? The Scriptures do teach that leaders should be given honor, but when a person insists on honor, or when a person insists on a title of honor, or when a person insists on, then he's on very, he or she is on very, very thin ice, because it's God who confers leadership, and it's God who withdraws leadership. So anytime anyone violates the spirit of Jesus Christ, who is the leader and ostensibly they're representing Jesus the leader, and they violate the spirit of Christ, they're on thin ice and in danger of judgment themselves, and God can so quickly make their hearts stop, take away their leadership. He can withdraw his restraint of evil, and they can fall away into terrible things. God help us all. This is pretty serious stuff. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is we're not to insist on titles, and we're not to expect to be served. As it says there in verse 11, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And then this haunting, if you will, verse 12, not seeking honors from people, recognizing, look what it says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And he's about to do this. Now he's going to crank out woe against the scribes and Pharisees. And the way they're going to end, if you would like read Josephus, would make you shudder to see what actually happens. And even what he says in the next few verses is going to happen. And when Jesus speaks on the future, what's going to happen to those who have abused their religious authority? Let's, let me make some applications. Don't be influenced by self-righteous leaders. Don't be influenced by self-righteous leaders. Don't follow teachers who are insincere or unsympathetic or proud. Don't have leaders like that. Don't be that kind of a leader in whatever leadership you have as a parent or as a teacher or as a preacher, deacon, pastor. Don't be that kind of leader. And don't be influenced by that kind of leader. Don't be influenced by false teachers. This is the main idea that Jesus is saying. Get away from them. Judge was going to come clear away from them. Now, here's a subtle thing. There are two ways to be influenced, I think. Maybe two general ways. One way to be influenced is to be like them is to think that they're right and to imitate them, to be like them, or to listen to them, to regard leaders that are insincere. That's one way we want to avoid, obviously. There's another way I see often people are influenced by religious hypocrites or insincere religious leaders. And what they do is they react against them, and then they reject the God and the Bible, and they reject things that are good, you see? Go back to verse one and notice what it says in verses one and two. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and disciples, saying, Scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do. What's he saying? He's saying he's saying that when they quote the law of God Don't disregard the law of God. That's why it's a terrible thing to be a religious leader and to be insincere because you're not just being insincere. You're dragging God into it. You're dragging the Bible into it. You're confusing people in a terrible way. If you're a parent, if you're a leader of any kind, and you use religion or you lose religious language to manipulate behaviors that you want for selfish reasons, then you create great confusion in the people that you're trying to influence or that you're manipulating it's a big difference, and this can be subtle, but it's a big difference between manipulating people's behavior and inspiring them to follow the Master Jesus. And we as parents, when we miss this, then there's uh, the piper to pay, usually later on. In other words, another way to say it is like this. Self-righteousness is an ugly thing. Self-righteousness is a wrong thing, an ugly thing, and something that God will judge. But true righteousness, which is found only in Jesus Christ and among those among whom God has worked in the power of His Spirit to justify and sanctify them, self-righteousness is an ugly, repulsive thing. Genuine righteousness is an attractive thing. There are warnings of those. Let me warn those of you who are put off by religious hypocrisy. Listen to this. Don't reject the law of God because people have distorted or abused or added to God's law. Because it's still God's law. If you're put off by religious hypocrisy, let me suggest don't reject God because people have misrepresented God. Because one day you will still answer to God. Don't spend all of your life pointing out the hypocrisy of others. Just humbly look at your own life for pockets of inconsistency in your own life. And first of all, look to the righteousness of Christ, which will always be compelling, always be beautiful, always be magnetic to you. But don't always be obsessed with the people that have disappointed you, obsessed with the people that have misrepresented the Lord or have misused His Word. This is a great danger. I just challenge you, I warn you. I would also warn any of those of you, all those of us, who in any way practice any kind of religious hypocrisy or insincerity, we distort the law or we add to it or we misrepresent God, it would be good for us to go back to chapter 18, especially what Jesus says about when we do that to young people. He says for a person like that who offends or causes a stumble, a young person, it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and for you to be drowned in the sea. He says there's going to be judgment for people who use my word and mess with people. There's going to be great judgment. So this is a very humbling message, isn't it? A very humbling discourse for us to read of Jesus that makes us think. Understand this, folks, and I would say this to our church. The big problems are not the ones you see outwardly, right? Am I right? The big problems are not the ones you see outwardly. I know. We see things outwardly that we go, oh, this is not good. Oh, that's not good. And you're right. But they're not the big problems. The big problems are the things that are inward. The things that are in the heart. That's what Jesus said. The real problems are not the external things. So we can fix external things by a series of pressure or by, ex- by you know, excluding people. We can, we can move the, the pawns around on the chessboard and make the church look better outwardly, but that's not our job. Our job is to address the heart of people because that's where things come from. That's where good things and bad things come from. The, the, the outside things. So if we beat down people about like the outward things, Okay, think about. It. Here comes a person, and, they, and, they, and we look at them outwardly, and we see that they are not what they ought to be based on our evaluation of outward things—something we can hear or see—and we know it's not good. And then we kind of like put the heat, the pressure on them, just to change that outward thing. So did that change their life? Did that set them free? Did that give them a heart of affection for Christ? No, it did not. Did we do them good or harm? We did them harm. Did we lighten their burden or did we weigh them down? We weighed them down even more. Are they going to come to us to help unravel the secrets of their soul? They are not. So if we want to unravel the secrets of people's souls, if we want to help people unravel the secrets of their souls that maybe they don't even understand, then we can't be quick to be judgmental and self-righteous about the outward things, even if they're wrong. This is the way Jesus was, and that's why people flocked to him. People flocked to him. Publicans and sinners flocked to Jesus. I heard a story about a man. A, he's a college teacher, and he had a speaking engagement in Hawaii. So he goes to Hawaii, right? From the east coast, the time difference is really significant. So instead of getting up, and when he wakes up in the morning, like three o'clock in the morning, and he's hungry, there's nothing open in Honolulu. He starts kind of wandering the streets, looking for a place to get some breakfast. And the only place he finds is this dye, this greasy spoon. It's a nasty, hole of a place. It has a counter with the bar stools at the counter. There's kind of a crude guy named Harry. He's kind of barking, you know, orders at people. He's all alone. He wanders in, and he looks around, and he looks at the menu. The menu itself is kind of dirty, and he, he says, uh, can I get a cup of coffee and a donut? The guy has a big greasy apron, and he wipes his hand on his apron. And he, he, With his bare hand, he grabs a donut, puts it on a plate, scoots it over to him. So he's drinking his coffee, he's eating his donut, and the door opens up, and eight or nine women come in. They're obviously prostitutes. They finish their night's work, and now they're here at the coffee shop with the teacher from the Christian school. They sit down on the seats all around him. The, the most boisterous of them is the woman that sits directly next to him, and she announces to everybody in the place, it's my birthday tomorrow. A gal on the other side says, so what do, you want, what do you want us to do? Sing you a song? Bake you a cake? Seriously? She goes, no, I don't expect you to sing me a song or bake me a cake. I just You don't have to be so mean about it. She said, it's just my birthday tomorrow. Nobody's ever sung me a song or, or baked me a cake. After a while, they left. The man sat there. He said to the proprietor, he said, Did these gals come in here all the time? He goes, yeah, they come in here every night. He goes, the gal, the loud one that was sitting next to me, what was her name? guy says, her name was Agnes. He says, I just had an idea when Agnes was here. Tomorrow night, why don't we just throw her a birthday party here? Would that be okay with you if we had a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow night? And the guy goes, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'll get a cake. guy says, cake is my job. I'll take care of the cake. And So the professor says, okay, then I'll get the decorations. And the next night, they shows up early, and they have a cake, and they decorate the place. And word must have gotten out, because when the gals come there, just a handful of them, they pack the place with prostitutes. And when they walk in, the place erupts with happy birthday to Agnes, and, and Agnes tears up a little bit until they bring the cake out. But when they bring the cake out, she bursts into sobbing tears, and she can't even blow the candles out. The cook blows out the candles, and he hands her knife and says, cut the cake, Agnes, and Agnes says, do you mind? She looks at the professor, she says, I've never had a birthday cake like this. Do I have to cut it right now? Could I take it next door and show my mom? And so she leaves to take the cake next door to show her mom her first and only birthday cake. And the professor stands up and he goes, well, I think we ought to pray now. And everybody kind of looked at him funny. And he prayed. And he prayed for Agnes. He prayed that God would deliver her and that God would bless her. And when he got done, the cook says, you're not a teacher. You're a preacher, aren't you? He said, well, I'm kind of a teacher and a preacher. And he says, Are you kidding me? What kind of church do you go to? He said, well, I go to a church that has birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, there's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I would join that church. Well, I thought about that story and want to remind us this morning. The people... Are offended and they're alienated by self-righteousness, but they're drawn to sincere displays of Jesus' love. Just like you love that story, Jesus didn't die so that we would he would we could go around the world and form kind of religious museums, Christian museums. When you go to the Middle East, there are some beautiful places in in Israel to see, but the but the places that were the spookiest to me were the places where groups of religious religious groups had argued and arm wrestled for years to create holy sites those places were kind of creepy to me and we don't want to make a creepy place that people don't understand because if we display, that's what happens when we display self righteousness jesus didn't lay down his life for us to put together kind of nice sanitary stale sterile religious clubs. Jesus wanted us to use the church as a way to display his righteousness and not our self-righteousness because there are people out there who still are longing for the beauty of Christ, but they're losing hope right now that they will ever see that in a group of people that names his name. When people look at you, when people look at me, I wonder what it is they see. Do they see the righteousness of Jesus, or do they see, like, self-righteousness? Let's pray and sing about that here as we close. Take your hymn book, turn to number 476. Pastor Pine will lead us in a meaningful, prayerful song. 476.